If you're a pop culture junkie who loves TV, film, music, comedy, and other really important stuff, then you've come to the right place. Get ready and settle in for Classic Conversations, the best pop culture interviews in the world. That's right, we circled the globe so you don't have to. If you're ready to be the king of the water cooler, then you're ready for Classic Conversations with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Betty, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 216 of Classic Conversations. As always, I am your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Great to have you back for what is sure to be one of the most classic conversations of all time. My guest today is Joyce Boulafont. We're diving deep into her memoir, My Four Hollywood Husbands. You've loved Joyce in a million roles, including Airplane, and of course, as one of the stars of the Mary Tyler Moore Show. My amazing conversation with Joyce is coming up in just a few seconds. And in these few seconds, I want to make sure everyone heard episode 214 with the amazing Patricia Ray. We dive deep into Patricia's story. It's inspirational. You're going to love it. Check that out. Speaking of inspiration, Joyce Boulafont, she's full of inspiration. We dive deep into her life, her four husbands. We talk about, oh, that time she was actually cast as Carol Brady on The Brady Bunch, but it seemed to go to someone named Florence Henderson anyway. We talk about that. Joyce shares a lot of cool stuff about her co-stars on the Mary Tyler Moore show and a bunch more. You're going to love it. Oh, and she almost killed Henry Fonda. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. I'm excited to introduce you to my next guest, one of TV's most familiar faces, star of stage, television and film, loved her on Mary Tyler Moore show, an airplane, Bad News Bears, a million game shows, and now the author of her own memoir, My Four Hollywood Husbands. Welcome to the show, actress, TV legend, Joyce Bellefont. Hey! Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. It's such an embarrassing title, that book. But <laughs> it was called Home Sweet Home, Where Is It? When I started it 24 years ago. At that time, I'd lived in 50 houses. I now I think I've lived in probably 75 houses and um, was all about the stories in some of those houses. And a friend called one day and he said, I've got the title for your book. And I said, what? He said, my four Hollywood husbands. I said, Bruce, that's disgusting. I, that is tacky. I would never, ever title a book that. And then I thought, yeah, but it might sell books. <laughs> and then it took a whole different turn to talk about alcoholism and the effects it has on your spouse and your children and how you can learn how to deal with that illness and go on with your life and have a successful, happy life and not be codependent anymore like I was. <laughs> it's an amazing journey that you take us through on the book and you don't have to be embarrassed. It's a great title. and. Thank you. And it serves well, right? Because those are sort of like the pillars, like where, you know, each each kind of milestone in your life where you can then kind of start to redefine the next part of your life. So I thought it worked out great. The only part that doesn't jive 100% is just you're too sweet to think that you had that many husbands. <laughs> I didn't plan on it. It's just that I'm, I don't, I always see the good in people. 
And I always see a hurt, kind of a hurt soul. And my big ego said, well, if I love them, if they feel loved, they'll be all right. And that was not understanding the addiction of alcoholism and my addiction of codependence, which fed right into their addiction. That was something that I learned that was kind of interesting because you actually spent 30 days at a rehab center for codependency. It was for me for codependency, but no one was there except a lot of alcoholics also are codependent. But it was all kinds of different dependencies. There was food and, and all kinds of addictions. And codependency is kind of an addiction as well. So it was very eye-opening and very, very difficult to go through, to dig deep into those emotions. There's a lot of emotions in the book. And it's, what was it? You said it took over two decades to write the book. So was it, is it, dip, was it difficult to put it all pen to paper and, and kind of get it out there? Uh, no, it's something when I separated from husband number three, <laughs> I moved up to the mountains to be near my two eldest children and kind of get away from Hollywood and all that. I started writing at longhand. I'm very dyslexic. So it took 24 years to write it. But once my friend Bruce gave me a different direction. And I thought the only reason for me to write a book would be if my life could be helpful to other people. And that was the purpose of it. And I was married to my wonderful husband, Roger, then, and he passed away four years ago. And it was wonderful because he, I could write it, rewrite, what of the rewrite, use what I had and rewrite it, slanted more towards what I wanted hopefully would be helpful to people. And he would read it. I would type it all out. Then he would read it and correct my spelling, that's for sure, and sometimes transpose a thought for me. But what was so great is he got to read over and over again and hear over and over again how much I loved him and how much I respected him, that he was able to overcome the addiction. And we were very, very lucky, like a miracle, after falling in love, an unspoken love, in 1962 and be married in 2002. And every time we'd sit down to have dinner, we'd look at each other and say, thank you, God, for this miracle. You know, it really was. And it, it was, it just kind of flowed out of me. I, I never had a blank page. Actually, I never have anything not to say. <laughs> I just have to learn to shut up and listen a lot. It's great that you were able to kind of share all those thoughts with him and in his final days. You know, so many people, that's a good lesson in itself to always tell people what they mean to you in their in your life when you have the chance to do it. Even at book signings, because I couldn't, I didn't want to read from the book. I'm not good at that. I'm not good at that. And it didn't, I just needed to talk a little bit about it. And Roger sat through every one of the book signings as we traveled up and down the East Coast. And I'd always introduce him and say he's been sober for as many years as he had. And, and it just, it, it, helped. it was wonderful to be able to do that. It's great in the book, because like you said, it was, uh, you were with your first husband, James MacArthur, Dano. You met Roger, you fell in love with Roger. I remember in the book, I'm like, oh, you know, I was like, oh, you found love. And then you're like, oh no, Edward. <laughs> yeah, it was unspoken, totally unspoken, because I was married and I thought, what's what's wrong with me? Jim and I knew each other since we were 14 and started dating at 
16 and married when we were 20. And I thought I never had that feeling before about anybody else. But it was because of the, the drinking and everything that was going on. And I, and, and I didn't understand it. And I thought, I'm not in love with Roger. I'm in love with the character he's playing in the series we were doing. But then when I found out more about him, and it was a very hard time to care that much about somebody, be in love with somebody else, and that marriage is not going well. And you don't want to break up the marriage and you want to keep trying to make it work. But that was the codependent part of me because it was not happy and because the alcohol made him abusive. So that was hard. But then we dated for a year when Jimmy and I got divorced. It was the most wonderful, fun year, but he was drinking, Roger was, but I didn't, right over my head, I didn't see it, except one night he opened the car door, he said goodbye forever, because I was kind of pushing him into, well, what does this mean that we love each other? We, uh, he said, well, I just want to move in with you and have a baby and not get married. And I said, I don't do that. <laughs> it was a time when people were living with each other and having children out of wedlock. And I had two little children. And I said, I, I don't do that. And he said, bye. But he also thought six months would go by and he'd come back and I'd say, oh, it's okay. I, I love you. But I didn't. I married one of his best friends. You don't mess with Joyce. She just moves on. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I just move on. On to the next one. <laughs> but with uh, with Jimmy, his mom was Helen Hayes, mm-hmm. first lady of American theater. You had quite a relationship with her. That was interesting to get to know. I do a show about her called Remembering Helen Hayes with Love, with pictures and music and films. As a matter of fact, I'm doing it in Nyack. Helen and Charles MacArthur's home is going to be made a literary landmark. In my research, Helen Hayes was the second person, first woman, to do get an EGOT, Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. Yes, she was. Yeah, that's yeah. impressive. I didn't really know what an EGOT was until like 30 Rock, Tina Fey show. And they, anyway, it was it. Anywho. All right. So enough about that. And <laughs> You mentioned uh, dyslexia, but uh, you, you didn't know you were dyslexic, so you were like 40, right? Yeah, 45 or so. Yes, my youngest son, John, who is a writer, director, producer, actor, uh, he's very dyslexic. He sort of is a garden variety. He's got it all. Mine is, it's all, It's very difficult to explain uh, dyslexia to people who don't understand. Some people say, oh, yeah, I know what that is. You see things backwards. No, that's not what it is. You uh, misread things. You uh, don't hear things correctly. You have trouble organizing. I mean, they're just all different phases of it. My mom definition is it's someone of average or above average intelligence who has difficulty learning in a traditional classroom setting. A lot of dyslexic in the entertainment field and are artists. You talk about, it was really interesting, or I've heard you talk about also how being in plays and drama and learning that way helped you. You didn't know it at the time, but you were sort of overcoming this and you were able to kind of learn in that way, in a creative way. Laugh through things a lot and and learn uh, memorization. I could memorize things. And I always said, teach children who learn differently, teach them theater. Because when you read a play, you're dealing with emotions and you're dealing with business with movement, which is a kinesthetic way to learn, a multi-sensory way to learn words 
And suddenly the words weren't just black letters on a white page. They came alive. They had meaning. And I always, I, I spoke all across the country about dyslexia one year. And I just said, please teach these children theater. They'll learn how to read. It's so wonderful. It, I love how you, you spend so much time with the charity work. And once you kind of embrace something and do good for people, it's wonderful. That's really cool. Thank you. Sorry to interrupt. Need to take a quick break. Want to thank everyone for your support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here at Classic Conversations. And that's how we keep the lights on. And now we're back to my delightful conversation with the amazing Joyce Boulafant. We're going to talk about her time in Detroit and some of her other roles. And we're back. Let's talk less serious for a second. <laughs> I have some, some yeah. entertainment stuff I want to dive into. Oh, you know, at first, before, when we first started talking, and I, I mentioned to you, I was uh, from Detroit. You, you did a play here called Vanities. Tell me about your time in Detroit. Oh, Fisher Theater was beautiful. I did it with Carrie Snodgrass and Barbara Anderson, who was on, oh, shoot, what was it called? It was a, a mystery um, with Don Galloway was in it. And, ooh, I've forgotten the name of it. A series that she did. And was that it, Carrie? And the three of us. I think that was it. I might be leaving somebody out. I hope not. But we had quite a time. It was fun. Barbara Anderson and I rented a house out in Orchard Lake. Is that what it's called? Yeah, Orchard. Uh, there's Orchard Lake. It's probably right by my house. Oh, is it? That was so pretty. That was fun. And at that time, Bill Asher and I, husband number three, we were we were having a rough time. I was ready to say so long to him because he didn't want to have anything to do with the children, my children. And we talked about that before we got married. My children because I had them before you, they're my first responsibility. If, if you were my husband and we had the children, you'd be my first. Can you handle that? Oh, yes, yes, no problem. But he wasn't very happy to have those little ones running around. And he said, everything I thought I wanted, I don't want. And I said, okay, goodbye. <laughs> and I, I went on the road to do the play. And then on Mother's Day, he showed up with my three children. And he said, can we talk this all out? And in the meantime, I had read a lot of books about relationships and how am I going to make this work and what what's my part in it? What do I need? And uh, he came out to the house and we talked about all that and got back together. And he ended up being a wonderful, wonderful father to my children and his who had really never had him as a father. Didn't, uh, didn't, did William adopt John? Yes, he did. Right. Yeah. So with who you mentioned earlier, John Asher. Who I you were in you you played John Asher's uh, I'm sorry you played John Asher's mom in Weird Science the, the television show that it was, it was really hard because I, he called me mom but I couldn't call him John <laughs> because he played Gary I think was his name in this series it was so much fun to work with him and then I don't know if you've had a chance. But if you do have a chance, if you can find it during COVID, when the lockdown period, he came from L.A. to be with me, I think more to make sure that I wouldn't go out and mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of hard to tie down. And he came to live with me for a year and a half. And while he was here and we were in lockdown, we did these crazy videos that we kind of improv and they're on YouTube, I think. I think it's, it might be called Living with Mom. Mom enjoys or stuck with mom. 
can't remember. But if you look up our names, maybe they show up on YouTube. They're very funny. I'll check it out. And then I also have noted that you worked with John on Toucan. Is that how you say it? And then Diamonds. <laughs> uh, that was a very naughty film. And I, I played, I had a, a wig on a curly uh, gray wig. And I spoke with an Irish accent because I was playing Liam Nielsen's mother, which was a spoof on Taken. So it was called Tooken. Tooken. There were some things I had to say. I didn't know what they meant. (laughs) And I'd say, John, what does this mean? Mom, don't ask. Just say it. Okay. Did you see it ever? I didn't see it, but I was digging around. I want to see it because. uh... Oh, it's crazy. This isn't this isn't your first parody film. We'll get to the other one in a second. But the um, and then Diamonds with Kirk Douglas, Lauren Bacall, and Dan Aykroyd, your son. Uh, that was fun. That's a good he cast. Keeps his mother working. If no one no one else does, he does. <laughs> hey, why not? Right? It's uh, he's looking for a property for me. He wants. He's just a big fan of his mom's, which thrills me because I'm a big fan of his. Something comedic. You got to find something that he's done because he did comedy movies for Alfie May, Margaret Cho, John Reap. He's uh, he's good with the comedy. So I, and you're hilarious. So that works out. So speaking of uh, Tooken <laughs> parody. So let's uh, let's pivot right to uh, Airplane. <laughs> oh, God. I did not want to do that movie. I got the script and I said, this is crazy. It doesn't make any sense. I said I was married to Bill Asher and I said, honey. There are people coming down the baggage claim. People, not bags, people. I said, doesn't make any sense. I don't want to do it. He said, you're an actress, you act. And I did. And it's one of the, they say it's one of the 100 funniest movies ever made. But on the set, we were going up and down the aisle saying, do you think this is funny? (laughs) And when I saw the first screening at Paramount, we were falling out of our seats laughing. I mean, the audience just was, was exploding. You couldn't contain the laughter. It was very exciting. It was also the first movie of of that kind. I mean, like every movie that came after it, it was, ba- you know, Airplane sort of reset that whole tone of, uh, yeah. or created that genre of parody movie, uh, Airport. I think it was uh, for Airport, right? Yeah. Your scene is hilarious, though, with Jill uh, Whelan. You play her mom. <laughs> And isn't it funny, Jill played my daughter and then played Gavin's daughter on Love Boat. And Gavin and I were married on the Mary Tyler Moore show. So, But the child, our child, Jill, was with me alone in airport and then with Gavin. That's how it works. It's weird. It's such a funny, it's such a funny scene. Yeah. And uh, I do have a question. I have a tangent question in one second, but. Uh, well, no, I'll just ask it. How, how did you not ever end up on the love boat? Oh, well, because I was doing a show called The Flow Show, and I was asked to come on and do a show there, and I was busy. I couldn't. So Helen Reddy did the part that I was going to do. So often I was working and couldn't do some things I wanted to do. Busy. The show, The Love Boat was on for 40 years. <laughs> oh, no. no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But like, I just met because of your connection with Gavin from the Mary Tyler Moore show. I was like, when I saw that, I'm like, how did you, how did they never get you on the love boat? Well, they tried, but I was, I was busy. I was a working actress. I was doing the Bill Cosby show. I was doing the flow show. I was doing Mary Tyler Moore show. I was doing a show called Love Thy Neighbor. Did you ever see that show? That was a really good show. 
talk about that show because it seemed like it was so, for 1973 it was so far ahead of its time just the concept and it was ahead of its time it was a show that was done first in England and then they optioned it and did it here and it was a black couple and a white couple that lived next door to each other and the black couple was the white man's boss oh boy I don't know if you could get away with some of the things we said on that show at this we even did a minstrel show on it it just, it was so much fun because I had a lot of physical comedy and Ron Masek played my husband and Harrison Page played his boss. And I always have trouble with their name and I just love her to death. I can't think of her name. But we, for instance, one of the lines we had once is we wanted to share a housekeeper and we sat with the newspaper and we didn't know whether to get a white housekeeper or a black housekeeper because she was black, I was white. So I said, why don't we get a Puerto Rican? <laughs> I mean, things like that would never go today. And I mean, uh, he brings home a watermelon for dinner when we've invited them to dinner. And I said, you can't give them a watermelon for dessert. And the doorbell rings, they're coming. And I've got a long hostess dress on. And I stand over the watermelon so they don't see it. And then I have to do this whole scene with the watermelon, walking around with the watermelon. It's, it was crazy. It was fun. Janet McLaughlin. Janet, love, thank you. You're welcome. It's amazing, though, like the shows like that and All in the Family, like a lot of that you can't do now. But it was back then, like what you just described was with the watermelon was more of the absurdity of the stereotype and making fun of that stereotype, right? Hi. Like now there's just no, there's no room for even I know, any borderline. I, it's You have to be very careful with humor today. I listen to blonde jokes all the time. I don't think, you know, not very nice, but that's okay. You know, I do, I do stand up comedy. So when we're backstage and, you know, there's all different folks back there and it's yeah. all, we make fun of each other all, you know, because it's just, you know, it's just the absurdity of it. And so we know it all is just coming from love and we're just all just kind of ribbing each other and making fun of the things that people make fun of. Exactly. And, and we all, if it's done good-naturedly, it's, it's fine. It's when it's done in, in a, um, when you're putting somebody down or something, then it's not funny. Right, right. As long as when they're the butt of the joke, like it's in a bad, bad way. Yeah. Oh, I there was really one funny story in the book. Not one. There was a funny story in the book that kind of cracked me up when you almost killed Henry Fonda. Oh, gosh, yes, that was terrible. <laughs> well, he lived, so it was funny. But <laughs> Yeah, he did live, so it was okay. He was, he was such a sweet man. It was his 63rd birthday, and we were in Spain. And of all, we had all this wonderful, rich, wonderful food all around. And he wanted corned beef hash for, with an egg for dinner and jello for dessert for his birthday. And I said, Really, that he's and try to get corned beef hash and, and jello in, in Spain. It's not easy in the little town we were in. Anyway, I managed to get it, and that's what we have for dinner. But I was didn't want to just give him plain jello, you know, and I wanted to put a candle in it. And I chopped up fruit to put in it, apples and cherries and grapes, all kind of nuts and everything, and uh, brought it out. We sang happy birthday, and he, he was so happy to get jello, and he took it a big bite. And his wife, Shirley, finally said, spit it out, spit it out. And I said, what, what? She said, spit it out. He's allergic to apples. He'll die. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, 
I didn't. Joyce almost robbed us of On Golden Pond. Look at that. <laughs> All right. All right. Oh, another cool story uh, from the book. I mean, there's a million, but like the, uh, you got to dance with Fred Astaire. Oh, yeah. That was wonderful. I thought it was going to be, I mean, I, first of all, I thought my agent was kidding when he called and said, how'd you like to do a, a show with Fred Astaire? And I said, that's very funny. Now, why are you calling? He said, no, I'm asking you, would you like to do a show with Fred Astaire? I said, come on. I was on a Perry Mason set. And I said, Ron, stop fooling around. I've got to get back to the set. He said, so you don't want to do the show with Fred Astaire? And I said, are you really serious? He said, yes. And you get to dance with him. Well, immediately I pictured a flowing chiffon dress and being lifted in the air in a ballroom with chandeliers. And I was thrilled, you know. So it wasn't that. It was the twist. <laughs> and right before we were going to start the scene, he grabbed me and he took me behind a set and he said, Miss Bullifant. I said, please call me Joyce. He always called me Miss Bullifant. I called him Mr. Stair. So please, he said, could you teach me to do the twist? I don't know how to do it. And I said, Mr. Stair, you want me to teach you a dance? And he said, yes, and do it fast. We're going to have to do it in a minute. So there I was teaching him how to do the twist. <laughs> It was delightful. That's awesome. So you could not only dance with Fred Astaire, you actually got to teach. I got to teach him the dance. <laughs> that is very cool. So I had Lloyd Schwartz on my program and Sherwood's son. And so we were talking about the Brady Bunch. And actually, you came up in that episode is just a matter of trivia. But like, now that I have you here... <laughs> Well, first of all, I want to hear what he said. It was pretty in line. It was it was more like I was saying, is it true that Joyce Boulevard had been cast first and as Carol Brady? And uh, he was just kind of confirming it and kind of just told that it was you didn't get too much into into the dirt. Because I, I think if, if I remember your telling of the story is you dealt with Sherwood. So Lloyd would have probably had it secondhand. Yeah. All right. So here you are. You are Carol Brady. You actually, this wasn't like one of those stories where uh, like, oh, Mickey Dolan's auditioned to be the Fonz. You didn't audition to be Carol Brady. You were. Yeah, I was Carol Brady. And I d auditioned the different men who were going to play the husband. And the little girls were cast to look like me. I was wardrobe. I spent two weeks going, they come pick me up in a limousine and we go to the great stores. And I signed a contract. And was all set, you know, and I was recently divorced from Jimmy with two little children. And I thought I'd fall into a pot of gold here, signing a seven-year contract. And I, it was great. And all these beautiful clothes. And I think it was as close to Thursday or Friday when I was showing Sherwood and the director, whose name I can't remember. I probably let it go. I, I can't remember who the director was. Isn't that funny? Let's not speak his name. Keep going. <laughs> but it wasn't his fault. I was showing them the wardrobe. And I said, now, this is the, the dress she wears uh, in the garden wedding. And I did a little twirl. And they just were sitting there. And they went. And I went into the dressing room. They didn't go, oh, that looks beautiful. Or, uh, or how about another color? They just went. And then I went in and I tried on a blue suit. I said, this is her going away suit that she wears to go on the honeymoon. And they just went. This is really weird. They usually say, what about a scarf? What about Woody rings? You know, they usually, they never just nod. I put the third outfit on. I came out and I said, is something wrong? And they said, sit down. 
And they said, we are trying so hard. We're fighting so hard for you. But all of a sudden, Marty Starger, who was head of ABC in New York, they get to have a final say, which I'd never heard. And I always thought it was a dumb deal. I didn't know that New York would have, could change everybody on the West Coast. And Florence Henderson has just become available. And they would like Florence Henderson. <laughs> it was like, really? Well, what happens? <laughs> and they said, we're fighting like hell for you because we've written you the part of Mrs. Brady to be funny and the housekeeper, the straight person. And we were looking at it like the Lucy show writing for you. If, if Florence does it, we have to change everything. We have to get another housekeeper. She'd be the funny one. Florence would be the straight person. And we're just arguing with the East Coast like crazy. And they make a decision tonight. And we're just, we want you to know that we want you to do it. And I said, okay. And Sherwood being the sweet, sensitive gentleman that he was, instead of calling and saying, sorry, <laughs> he came to the house and said, um, I, I thought he was going to cry. I mean, he was, he was really upset. And I think he was so upset that I, I couldn't be. <laughs> you know, I said, well, you know, that okay. You know, don't worry about it. Be okay. And you know what? They gave me a gift, a very appropriate gift. They gave me the going away suit. <laughs> How nice of them. <laughs> but Sherwood said, the next thing I do, you're going to be in. And I was. He did a show called Big John, Little John. That was a Saturday morning show with Herb Edelman. But man, I was in it. He kept his word. And, um, you know, I, I, I never wanted to go lie on the railroad tracks when I heard I didn't get something. Of course, it was disappointing, but it, it is what it is. And besides, I got my own Brady Bunch down the road. I had my own eight Brady Bunch, you know. So um, I always, I truly think things happen for a reason. They really do. And Florence was Florence was wonderful and she's charming and it, it was a different show than what they had conceived it to be, but it, it worked. So you can't deny that. Well, there's the story. All right. We've got to take a quick break and we'll be right back. And we're back with Joyce Bullivant. A little more reflection on the Brady Bunch. Enjoy. Well, let me, let me ask you a question because we're having this conversation in the hindsight of its popularity after syndication. So during the time when Brady Bunch actually aired, it was never a critic hit or a huge ratings success, as I understand it. I, I didn't know that. Too bad. I feel like you did know that and you keep it written on something under your pillow. No, I'm just <laughs> I think they should do a, a redo of the Brady Bunch, only it's the grandmother. Boom. Right. They should have brought you in for the movie or something. Like, um, But at the time, once the show aired... Were you like, all right, another show, I just move on, I'm doing something else, you know what I mean, that kind of thing? It probably wasn't until yeah. later where you're like, where the thing kind of blew up, where you're like, oh, that could have been me. Well, I thought, boy, that show would have made my life secure. <laughs> but I heard there were a lot of difficulties on the set, too. And um, that's sad. But Florence was a friend, and, and I was thrilled that it went well for her and Fisherwood and the kids. But not the other maid that got, that got replaced by Ann B. Davis. But I read in your book, if I remember correctly, you and Florence actually had the same agent. Did you both have the same agent after this happened? No, when it was happening. No, I meant like after it happened. <laughs> Did you know? <laughs> I stayed with that agent, unbelievably. 
so, who obviously didn't fight very hard for me or make sure that my contract was fulfilled. And I wouldn't have gone in and fought it because First of all, I wouldn't have worked again. But my feeling was, okay, if they don't want me, they don't want me. You know, I it's like, I, I don't want to be with somebody if they don't want to be with me. That's painful. Right. It's funny. Like, it's a lot of times you hear about a funnier Brady Bunch with you as Carol. I, I can picture that. I can picture that. And I'm not just saying it because we're here together. I'm like, oh, that would have yeah. been really funny. That would have been the show that they were had written, but they had to rewrite it and recast. This is why it. the upper brass, the echelon, needs to not get involved with yeah. them. They should have let the creators do what they wanted yeah. to do. All right. Well, let's talk about Big John, Little John for a second, because it wasn't just Herb Edelman. You also worked with cousin Oliver, Robbie Rist. Right. So yes. there's another Brady Bunch connection. He's hey, you didn't get the role, Carol Brady, but everyone blames him for destroying the Brady Bunch. <laughs> <laughs> Which he does not deserve, but that is the uh, mythos. I had him. I had a conversation with him too, and like we talked all about that. <laughs> so, all right. So that was fun. So, all right. So Sherwood Schwartz had you, and then you also did an episode of Harper Valley PTA, which was a Sherwood Schwartz show as well. The Mary Tyler Moore show. Let's talk about the Mary Tyler Moore show. Well, all my friends are have died, and it's very sad. I think I'm doing a lot of interviews now just because they think, oh, she's going to be next. <laughs> you know, get, get her while she's still kicking. I don't know. Uh, what would you like to know? I'd love to it? just know about some of the friends that you've lost. I mean, it's just like anecdotes, like uh, Betty. I mean, like when you think about Betty White and Ted Knight, who I think is one of the funniest people in the world. I knew what Betty White said about me. She said, when Joyce tells a naughty story, it sounds like a nursery rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> I do get away with things I guess some other people couldn't because it sounds very innocent. <laughs> and Ed Asner was, he, he was that gruff old bear, but with a heart of gold. Anytime I asked him to do a fundraiser and I was always raising money for one thing or another, he would always show up. He'd always be there. And, um, and Valerie was the dearest person that I remember the first day on the show. She said, if you need help with your lines, I'll run lines with you. And she was just a light. She was wonderful. And uh, let's see who else, Betty and Gavin. Well, Gavin was my neighbor here in the desert. And we did a lot of fundraising together. And he played the lead in a musical that Roger really? and I wrote. And one of the songs that he sang was... If only for a moment I could hold you again. If only for a moment I could kiss you again. If only for a moment I could tell you that I love you, love you. And the moment I was living in Colorado and I heard he'd gone into hospice and I flew right home and he was in the apartment he and Patty live in, in a hospital bed. And I leaned over and gave him a kiss on the forehead. And he started singing, if only for a moment I could hold you again. Just the tears coming down each week. He was the dearest person ever. You know, when you say, and people often say, I never heard them say a bad word about anyone. Well, I have to tell you, Gavin wasn't able to say a bad word about anyone or a play or anything. He just always found the goodness in a person, in a project, in whatever. He was... Yeah, that's that's how I mean, I I never met him or talked to him or anything, but he falls into that. Henry Winkler is another one like there's there's a certain ilk of of those folks where and there's not a lot. You can't count a lot of people who people just only have glowing things to say about. So 
That's so wonderful. And then you got to be his husband and you got to be mother to Helen Hunt on Mary Tyler Moore. <laughs> yes. Isn't that amazing? That was her first appearance. I love that. But it was just she was just yes. on it like once, right? Just one episode? Okay. Yeah. Was right. being on set with Mary Tyler Moore show as much fun off camera as it was on camera? I mean, these are this is such a group. It was pretty serious work. Comedy's hard. Comedy is serious. And the writers, uh, Jim Brooks and Alan Burns, and uh, they, uh, Ed Weinberger, you'd come in, you'd do a table reading, and it would be so funny, so great, so slick. And you'd come back the next day, and it was even shinier. They never stopped working on it till it just glistened. And that's wonderful to work that way with people that are that dedicated. And that was terrific. So speaking of uh, how you can say anything and get away with it, that probably helped out a lot on Match Game. I'm curious because you were on a lot of game shows, but it seems there was a lot of people that that was something that that was part of like the entertainment culture where these game shows and you would go. Can you explain that to me? Like just how that was used and leveraged to get you and other people's kind of faces always out there? No, except I did have a PR person at that time, and that's why I did Match Game. But they were very careful on Match Game. They, you'd be on the first time you were ever on, you were in the, the bottom row in the first seat. And if they liked you, you'd come back there. And then if they, I think if they realized you had a sense of humor, then they put you in the last seat on the row because it gets so repetitive with everybody saying the same thing. So by the time you get to the last person, hopefully they have a funny bone about the question or something. For me, it was the fact I couldn't spell. So I was embarrassed because you would have to, you'd have to hold up what you wrote. And I mostly couldn't spell what it was. And I didn't want people to know that. So I tried to think of something close to it, but it wasn't quite. <laughs> so there's a method in my madness, but it came across oh. funny. That's what happened. Oh, that's really funny. There's some really, I will save this for people who buy the book. There's, there's some good, good stories about uh, Gene Rayburn in there. So we'll save those. We'll save those. Right? You got to buy the book. We're not going to give everything away. Got about it. Were these fun opportunities to kind of connect with all these other celebrities and kind of hang with? It was fun. They'd have guest stars and like Ethel Merman and, you know, some wonderful celebrity people that you had sat around at dinner with. And Charles Nelson Riley was hysterical. Oh my gosh, he was a funny guy. And it was hard because you do five shows in one day. You just change your top and pretend you're on another day. So it's a bit exhausting. It was on the weekends. And I kind of wanted to be at home with Bill and the children. So I would take one child to the show every other time. But they weren't allowed to come in when we had dinner because it's pretty raucous. And so they had to have their dinner in my dressing room. Sounds like it was a blast to do all that. They just brought Match Game back. I don't know if it's still on, but with, uh, oh my God, Alec Baldwin. With Alec Baldwin, they brought not quite, not the, quite same. the same, but they, they did have the same kind of microphone. They tried to. <laughs> you know, we didn't, we, they didn't write for us. We made our own jokes and things. The Hollywood Squares, they wrote jokes for the people, but. We didn't. We were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. And then, um, oh, and then you were David Spade's mother on Just Shoot Me. Yeah, that was fun. That was really fun. That was a whole new way of doing things. So, uh, the Mary Tyler Moore show and every other show I did, live audience, you would have a rehearsal 
what they called a rehearsal, but run with an audience. So you knew where the laughs were, you knew where to hold. And then you'd go to dinner, come back and do another show. And you wouldn't do pickups if there was a mistake or a drop line. The audience left and then you did the pickups. Nowadays, the poor audience, they keep them there till three in the morning and they throw candy bars at them to keep them there while you're doing retakes or trying a new line or I think it's abominable to do that to an audience. And then it's not fresh. They say, now remember how you laugh. Laugh again wow, there. that sounds exhausting to be in the audience. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Choice. I, uh, I'd like all this time has flown by. It's uh, been so much fun talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me in to talk oh, to you. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Wait, let's talk about the book one more time. My Four Hollywood Husbands. By Joyce yes. Bullabong on Amazon. You can get it. It is a delight. Got all the feels. So check that out. Joyce, I can't thank you enough for hanging out with me. This was so much fun. It was a great hangout. And uh, be safe. Be careful out there. You too. World. You too. Bye-bye. All right. The amazing Joyce Boulevard. Definitely check out her book, My Four Hollywood Husbands. Lots of great, great stories in there. Joyce was such a delight to talk to. I loved hearing all of her stories. Thank goodness Henry Fonda didn't eat her jello, huh? I know, right? All right, well, with the interview over, it can only mean one thing. I know, episode 216 has come to an end. Can't believe it either. One more huge thank you to my special guest, Joyce Boulafont. And of course, a huge thank you to all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me, and I'll see you next time so much for listening to this episode of Classic Conversations. If you like what you heard, don't be shy and give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. Also, why not go ahead and tell all your friends about the show? You strike us as the kind of person that people listen to. Thanks in advance for spreading the word, and we'll catch you next time on Classic Conversations. Classic Conversations.